0: You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Hey, everyone. Again, before I begin, here is a podcast promo for a podcast that I personally enjoy, and I've been listening to this podcast for quite a while now. Here is Writing About Crime. I'm Bonnie Lee, the host of Writing About Crime. A Canadian true crime podcast that looks for the story behind criminal cases. The people, the places, and the events that join together to create a narrative, not a scoop. I am not reading you the news. I am writing about crime. I hope you'll join me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bonnie's stories are very well written and very well told. And I have to say, I really do dig her voice. So if you're into true crime and you're looking for a good story, this is the podcast for you. Now let's begin today's episode. Welcome to episode 33 of the Asian Madness podcast. It's unnerving sometimes seeing my episode number grow, Partly because it looks unreal, and also because I'm just naturally anxious and self-conscious. Thank you to everybody who listens to me and continues to inspire me. I never knew I was capable of a project like this, but you have all made me realize anything. Well, not anything, but podcasting is possible. So, sorry to get a bit sentimental today, but I think researching so many murder cases and seeing how people give up on themselves and destroy everything else, it makes me sad for everybody. Okay, let's push these weird fuzzy feelings aside for now and begin today's episode. So, this case was suggested to me by a listener and a Twitter follower. So, shout out to Twitter user Sentient Electronic Android Nerdbot from Canada. Yeah, bet you guys were not expecting that nickname. Anyway, this is a very tragic case, but so interesting and shocking. I don't tell stories to shock you guys. As you know, I do it to bring awareness to all groups of people. And today's case tells of a very specific group that was targeted. In a sense, It is similar to the Metro Attack episode, but just a lot more deadly and in a complete different scenario. Yes, this is another case of mass murder that happened in July of 2016 in Kanagawa Prefecture, Japan. This is the case of the Sagamihara Care Facility stabbings. Let me begin by giving you a brief description of the location and the facility itself. Tsukui Yamayurien, which translates to Tsukui Lily Garden, is a care facility in the city of Sagamihara in Kanagawa Prefecture, Japan. It's about an hour drive from Tokyo. This facility is a social welfare organization and was established by the local government. Size wise, it takes up about a total of 7.5 acres. Squee Lily Garden was a home for people of all ages, ranging from people in their late teens to people in their 70s. People in this facility either have physical disabilities or general learning disabilities, and at the time of the attack in 2016, there were a total of 149 residents. While some were capable of walking and getting things done on their own, There were plenty others who were bedridden and needed care 24-7. This place was more of a community care facility, so in a sense, they were all from the local area, and many families were familiar with each other. From what I found online, this care facility has other care centers in other locations, all aimed to help people with all sorts of disabilities. In the early morning hours of July 26, 2016, at around 2.10 a.m., a man snuck into Tsukui Lily Garden. He wasn't there to rob the facility, nor was he there to visit anyone. He was there to accomplish his mission, his goal. First, he broke a window to gain access into the east wing of the building, all the while dragging a big backpack around with him. He soon came upon a few female employees working the midnight shift, and instead of harming them, he managed to subdue them and tie them up with zip ties. He was not there to harm the employees. He had bigger plans. He then began going from room to room, not searching for anything in particular, but killing. It was in the dead of night, and everybody was asleep. He took advantage of the time and of the situation, and went around stabbing and slitting the throats of those sound asleep. This was his mission—to kill as many people in the care facility as possible. It's unclear as to how many rooms he managed to enter, but at some point, at around two thirty a.m., the tied-up employee managed to get free and called the police. They were told that a man with a knife had entered the premise and was going from room to room, hurting people. The police arrived half an hour later, which probably felt like forever for those that were in the facility. It was late, and it was a quiet town. No one was expecting this kind of shit show to happen in the middle of the night. Or at any time of the day, actually. Unfortunately, they missed this man by about 10 minutes, where CCTV footage showed him leaving at around 2.47 AM. The police were in shock. Things like this did not happen in a place like this, especially since they weren't even in the center of Tokyo or in a buzzing city. About 30 ambulances were called to the scene, quite a ridiculous amount really, which shows just how many people were attacked. While paramedics were busy trying to save lives and transport people to the hospital, The police were trying to find clues as to who was responsible. Kind of luckily for them, they didn't really need to search for long. A little while after the attack, between 3 and 4 a.m., a man carrying a bag shows up at the local police station, claiming that he was the one they were looking for. He had supposedly driven around and parked outside the police station, and when police checked his bags, they found multiple knives some were still bloodstained. They also found another knife inside his car. He was immediately taken into custody. At this point, it was already determined that 19 people, 10 women, and 9 men had been murdered, while 26 others were wounded, 13 of those severely wounded. This was actually the worst attack in Japan since World War Two. Now let's discuss who this guy was because man, he is a pitiful person. His name is Uematsu Satoshi, and I will refer to him by his first name Satoshi from now on. He was born on January twentieth, nineteen ninety, in Tokyo, and he was an only child. His mother was a manga artist. His father was an elementary school teacher, and he himself also studied and learned about teaching kids and he probably was thinking of becoming a teacher himself. His family home was located in the same area as the care center, and while he lived with his parents for most of his life, his parents ended up moving away, but he stayed on, living on his own. Why, you ask? It was rumored that he got into a huge argument-slash-fight with his parents, and they just up and left, leaving him on his own. Well, I mean, it's not weird to live alone. He was already in his 20s, and that's definitely old enough to be alone. But the way he came to live on his own isn't exactly desirable, I suppose. Well he was described as kind and gentle as a boy, his personality took a turn when he was in university. He began to get multiple tattoos, smoked a lot of weed, ran around with the bad crowd, partied too much and refused to make himself useful. Okay, getting multiple tattoos and smoking a lot of weed, those two things I am not judging whatsoever. It's the latter parts that made him kind of the rebel and the black sheep of the family. But you also have to remember in Japan, where society is a lot more conservative, these factors put together make him stand out even more. Basically, he became every Asian parent's worst nightmare. It honestly doesn't sound so bad, but Asian culture, like I said, is very conservative. This could also be the reason as to why his parents left him alone. So how is he connected to this case at all? In December of 2012, Presumably after he graduated from university, he began working at Tsukui Lily Garden as a temp worker. It was said that he was not able to pursue a teaching career because of the tattoos on his body. So despite his passion and high praises he received from those around him, his teaching career was cut short. And yeah, Japan is pretty strict about tattoos as they tend to get associated with the Yakuza a.k.a. the Japanese Gang's Mafia. You're not allowed to enter bathhouses if you have tattoos on you, so if you're inked and you're going to Japan, just know you're probably not welcome in most bathhouses. Okay, back to the case. Yes, he worked as a temp worker at the care facility, and a few months later, he even became a full-time employee. If this is all you knew about the guy, you would think he was born to help people, born to teach and serve others, full of love, all that. And like I said, so you'd think. Things were actually way more complicated and in the worst way possible. You know how I said he was a pleasant boy and liked by everyone and people saw him as a wonderful teacher? It was true but sometime during his employment at the facility, his personality took a weird turn. He became irritable and impatient. He would engage in petty arguments with his co-workers and family members. As if that was not slightly alarming enough, things totally escalated from there on. Earlier in February of 2016, he wrote a letter and tried to hand-deliver it to Oshima Tadamori at his residence who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives of Japan. So basically, a big guy in the Japanese government. He was turned away at the door because, duh, but being persistent, he returned the next day and was still rejected. This time, he left the letter with the security guards. So what did he want? He was asking for the legalization of euthanasia for those with disabilities when requested by their guardians. Basically, he believed that these people were not living a real life, and sometimes it's not worth the pain and suffering it brings to yourself and to those around you. In the letter he stated, I envision a world where a person with multiple disabilities can be euthanized with an agreement from the guardians when it is difficult for the person to carry out household and social activities. Let's take a slight detour and discuss euthanasia. Legal euthanasia isn't uncommon whatsoever, but mostly in the West. It's legal in places like Belgium, Switzerland, and Canada, but even when it is legal, the regulations still vary. Some are legal in the active sense, some are only legal in the passive sense. Japan is said to be in favor of passive euthanasia, but must meet the following conditions. The patient must be suffering from terminal incurable disease. Patient must give clear consent via a will or family testimony. Passive euthanasia is okay by stopping medical treatment. As for active euthanasia in Japan, The conditions are similar to the previous three, except the patient must give personal consent, not via will or family members, and the doctor has to have exhausted all methods of treatment. So even if it is supposedly legal in Japan, it's not common at all. There were two documented cases of euthanasia in Japan, and in both cases, the doctors in charge were found guilty of violating the conditions. Basically, the conditions are there, but people don't really do it because it's not common and very, very risky. Now, back to the case. What do you think about Satoshi's vision? He also asked Oshima to pass the message on to the Japanese Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo. In the letter, he also explained that by getting rid of disabled people, Japan will thrive, will benefit the global economy, and probably prevent World War III. Okay. I honestly felt like I could somewhat understand where he was coming from up until this point. Maybe he had been working at the care facility for too long and had witnessed too many people who are in constant pain and wanted a way out. Maybe he was trying to put something out there, something that can help and benefit those around him. I don't know, but as soon as he got to the World War 3 part, hmm. This next part is just creepy though, especially knowing what happened months later. Satoshi offered to kill off 460 patients in two care facilities. He said he wouldn't hurt those working there, just the ones who were disabled. He would tie them up, he would kill them swiftly, not trying to cause them pain. After his accomplishment, he would even be willing to turn himself in. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Hmm. This is almost exactly what he did, except there weren't that many people for him to kill. He signed his name and personal info at the bottom of the letter, which made it easy for people to locate him. At this point, I believe he might have been suffering from some sort of mental health issue as he was probably completely serious when writing about his ideologies. Not many people go around offering to kill people like this. His ramblings eventually made its way to the Tokyo police, then to the local Sagamihara police. They arrested and questioned him, and Satoshi was then involuntarily hospitalized. I am so glad because God knows that's what he needed. But after two weeks of evaluation, the doctors were like, Okay, Satoshi, you're great, good to go, run along now. So, run along he did. He returned home, as in where he lived alone. It was also around February and March where he stopped working at Skui Lily Garden. He was allegedly fired for inappropriate speech and behavior to the staff and the patients, which is very much not shocking. He probably held some kind of grudge against his former work facility from then on. So let's now move on to the trial part. Satoshi was deemed to be mentally competent to stand trial, and in February of 2017, he was charged with 19 counts of murder and 24 counts of attempted murder and a few more counts of illegal confinement and sword and firearm violations. Despite being mentally competent, he was evaluated and found to be suffering from narcissistic personality disorder and delusions that may have affected his self-control. On September of 2017, There was a pre-trial arrangement procedure that was held privately between the prosecution and the defense team. Both sides submitted documents and exchanged opinions. There were three meetings in total where the two sides exchanged information and evidence. In January of 2018, Satoshi received an appraisal and the biggest question everyone would be facing was, to what extent was the defendant responsible? Satoshi received another psychological evaluation in September of 2018, and the results came back the same as the first time. It was discovered that he had initially planned a second attack on another facility the same night, but he gave up on that after the first attack, believing the police would try to interfere with his plans. You think? Satoshi has not changed his stance on disabled people, still believing that they should be gone from this world. But he expressed sorrow on his execution. He said he couldn't think of a better way to get it done. How about just don't? He is prepared to tell the world that he stands by his decision, that those he killed that night were no longer people. He has even stated that he agrees with Hitler's ideologies in regards to those with disabilities, as in, it is okay to get rid of them. But wait, He explains that he doesn't do it out of hatred, but rather out of compassion. I imagine that this is very concerning for his defense team. Two social welfare specialists have been meeting with Satoshi since last year, trying to bring normalcy to his mind, hoping to make him realize the importance of caring for the disabled. He doesn't believe he will receive the death sentence, as he thinks it's ridiculous. I will, of course, keep this case on my radar and update whenever I can. As you might have noticed, no, I don't have the names for the victims. Again, I have explained why this is a thing in many places in Asia. It's out of respect to keep the victims' families out of the spotlight, to stop the media and other people from harassing them. Sometimes the last thing people need is to be reminded regularly about what happened so this is a way to give them respect and privacy and a chance to move on. As for Tsukui Lily Garden, it has been vacant since the attack and is now under demolition. The Kanagawa government expects the demolition work to be finished by March of this year, as in next month, and rebuilding work will begin right away. They do intend on reopening their doors again, and that is scheduled to happen in the year 2021. Many people believe that their society is not made to be inclusive of those with disabilities, which makes it harder for them to be a part of society or feel like they have value. Families and care facility workers and advocates highly encourage the government to assist in this area and make the entire society more welcoming of those with disabilities, A bill was also approved by the government to help people discharged from mental health facilities. Although they are free to go, they may not be 100% well. It is important to check up on these people or even keep them around for a longer period of time, if necessary. One last bit of interesting information. Remember I said that Satoshi's mother was a manga artist? It was later on discovered that Satoshi's mother was actually a horror manga artist, And of course, people were like, oh no, it must have affected him. No wonder he went around killing people. Obviously, most people disagree with this comment, but we know that this is an argument plenty of people use. Oh, he watched a lot of violent films, explains his violence, maybe to some extent, but it has to do with the individual. Because if everybody who watched violent and horror movies did as they saw this world would be 100% worse. Since manga culture is a huge thing in Japan, this accusation really angered a lot of people and they basically called BS on the entire assumption. So there you have it. The mass murder committed on those who needed extra care and attention. Those who were unable to defend themselves. What he did is not forgivable. But you also cannot deny that this dude needs help. It's extremely tragic and, in some sense, could have been prevented. He literally ended up doing exactly what he stated he would do in the letter. And yet, no one took the threat very seriously. Sometimes this happens when society is safe in general. I'm sure if the U.S. received threats in schools, it would be taken extremely seriously. At the risk of getting into touchy waters, I would just like to say that most of East Asia has very strict gun control. So, in a sense, this attack, being the most serious attack since World War II, might sound totally crazy to some of you. I'm not here to impose my opinions on guns and weapons, but you know what? People need to keep themselves in check. A knife is able to bring on a lot of chaos, yes, but the truth is, When a dangerous weapon, gun, or knife falls into the wrong hands, there will be a problem. A big one. Let's all be responsible people, please. Don't go around destroying the lives of others. That's rude and selfish. Just be kind. It usually works. Till next time. So I would like to thank the following people for their amazing reviews. From Australia, Tracy A.O. From Canada, there is George from Canada. And from the UK, Kate Lisa Renwick. And from the US, Mara Vlad, My Panda 6 zeros and a 6, Liddy 777, and La Lulu 77. That's a lot of 7s. Thank you all so much for supporting me and for giving me feedback. I honestly do appreciate being honest in your reviews. And although, yes, I it could hurt my feelings or, you know, because I'm sensitive and whatever. But I honestly do prefer your honest opinion. And if you do have constructive criticism, please send them my way. I will change what I can, but if I can't, like, you know, my voice, the way I talk, it's a little bit difficult to change that. So I do appreciate everything you guys send my way. And I would also like to thank the podcast, Out of the Shadows, Shane Waters and Gemma Hoskins, for becoming my Patreon. If you haven't been listening to Out of the Shadows, you really should, as they are Continuing the discussion from the keepers as in the Netflix docu series and they're looking into sister Kathy Sesnick's murder. It's a lot of interviews with firsthand accounts and victims and survivors. So I think it's a really good podcast to keep yourself updated on the case. And thank you to everybody who listens and I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at AsianMadnessPod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time.